welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Gimp. Now that guy knows at the party. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Monster Joe's Truck and Tow. Drop your problem car off and we'll fix it in two shakes of a lamb's tail at Monster Joe's. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, uh, writers, musician, producer. Uh, we do a lot of things and we try to use that to uh, look at films, analyze them. How can we get better at what we do? And also maybe demystify a few things along the way. Um, also, we're off to a, a nice new year. Happy late birthday, man. Oh, thank you, brother. Yeah. How was, uh, how was the big day? Oh, it was great. It was great. Didn't do much. Just hung out, uh, made some music, uh, hung out with family. And uh, uh, I, my my wife knows me. She got me a, a new hard drive. How big of a dork am I? Uh, but I've needed one for a long time. Got a new, got me a new Samsung solid state drive. Two terabytes. Thank you very Damn. much. That's good yeah. time. Yeah, that is really fucking funny, actually. <laughs> 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 it doesn't take much, but they're expensive, man. They're not, they're not cheap. You know what I mean? True. True that. Um, uh, but no, I was, I've been working off of, uh, an older, you know, spinny drive and I got my whole album and everything on it, all the pestles and, and everything on it. And so I was just at one point I plugged it in and it took a while to, <laughs> to, uh, to register in, on my computer and it scared me. And I thought, I just, you know, you know, I buy synthesizers and, you know, other, other gear that I love and want, but you know, you gotta, you gotta think about storage, you know, you really do. That's a big part of production. And there's been a long running, I don't know, uh, debate between film and digital. Um, and that's one of the things that people usually leave off their, their calculation when comparing, cause you look at film and you say, Oh, the film stock and then the processing and then scanning. And whereas digital has, you know, equivalents of costs that are going to, you know, eat up a lot of budget when you're talking about being on set, downloading your cards and backing them up. And that requires an extra person on set with their own gear. And then suddenly, instead of sure, you're not having to acquire film stock and processing scanning, but you are having to acquire uh, a DIT, a digital imaging technician on set that's going to sit there and, and watch over the footage, make sure it's uh, backed up redundantly and goes out to whatever three or four different people at the end of the day so that you have uh, that redundant backup. That costs a lot. I mean, you're probably looking at 1500 two grand a day just for your dit. And so it all factors in to, you know, whether or not you shoot digital or film for sure. Uh, but also, you know, uh, long-term you're having to back up and uh, redundantly, regardless film or, or digital, you're having to back up all that footage, uh, once you're, you know, into post-production at a minimum and then long-term becomes another conversation about, you know, is the long-term storage of digital, you know, feasible with film, you have a physical medium that, you know, we do go back and rescan like, Oh, we want a new, uh, Pulp Fiction remaster and uh, whatever the scanning technology has gotten better. You can go back and re scan the original film stock and get suddenly a better quality picture. Whereas digital, you don't know if you're going to be able to read the media, you know, a century from now, whereas we can go back a century and find old forgotten films and still rescan them. I mean, if you go look at uh, Apollo 11, you know, that was 
basically lost footage, you know, in, in a sense of old 65 millimeter film that they were to, able to rescan and create a whole new film from this bend film. Like, and it, and it looks better than you could have shot it today. I don't know how they did that, but my God, it's just amazing. amazing. Like that, <laughs> man, when I watched that, my, the entire time my jaw was on the ground, just how good it looked, you know, that you could not have shot it better today. Couldn't, couldn't. Um, and yeah. And so that's one of the many things I love about Quentin Tarantino is he's a he's a film buff like I, i'm pretty sure he still shoots film uh maybe at mm-hmm. some point he'll take the dive and and actually shoot digital uh if for no other reason then he's forced to by some production or another uh maybe if he wants to get into like tv uh suddenly he's like okay you can't shoot you know film on for whatever cbs i don't know who who knows what's in that that guy's future but i know he still loves film and he's fighting for it and you know he's a he's a classic filmmaker um yeah and so i'm excited to talk about him and what he's got going on today uh what are we what are we looking at man today we are covering his pulp fiction so if you haven't seen this film uh please pause the episode go watch it we're gonna spoil a bunch of stuff for sure we'll look at a lot of things dive into some of the story and writing uh out of sequence storytelling contrast dialogue we'll also look at some of the directing and production value uh long takes music how they use it and other such stuff and things and stuff and a quick synopsis of the film and i'm going to butcher the cinematographer by the way but here we go the lives of two mob hitmen a boxer a gangster and his wife and a pair of diner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption it's written and directed by quentin tarantino Cinematography by Andres Sikula, featuring Tim Roth as Pumpkin, Amanda Plummer as Honey Bunny, John Travolta as Vincent Vega, Samuel L. Jackson as Jules, Bruce Willis as Butch, Bing Rames as Marcellus Wallace, and Uma Thurman as Mia Wallace. You ever seen that show, Cops? I was watching it one time, and there was this, this cop on, he was talking about, about this gunfight he had in the hallway with this, this guy, right? And he just unloaded on this guy, and nothing happened. He didn't hit nothing. Okay, it was just him and this guy. I mean, you know, it's it's freaky, but it happens. Look, you want to play blind man, go walk with the shepherd. But me, my eyes are wide fucking open. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, that's it for me. From here on in, you consider my ass retired. Jesus Christ. Don't blaspheme. God damn it, I said don't do that. Hey, you know why you're fucking freaking out on us? Look, I'm telling Marcellus today. I'm through. Well, why don't you tell him at the same time why? Don't worry, I will. Yeah, and I'll bet you $10,000 he laughs his ass off. I don't give a damn if he does. Marvin, what do you make of all this? Man, I don't even have an opinion. Well, you gotta have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped... Oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh, man, I see some crazy-ass shit in my time, but just... Chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. He probably he went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. Hey, look, man, I didn't I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Well, look at this fucking mess, man. We're on a city street in broad daylight here. Well, believe it, man. Well, believe it now, motherfucker. We got to get this car off the road. You know, cops tend to notice shit like you're driving a just car against this fucking a, blood. Just take it to a friendly place, that's all. This is the valley, Vincent. Marcellus ain't got no friendly but places in the valley. But you'll save my fucking town, man. Shit. What you doing? I'm calling my partner in Toluca Lake. Where's Toluca Lake? It's just over the hill here, over by Burbank Studios. If Jimmy's ass ain't home, I don't know what the fuck we gonna do, man, because I ain't got no other partners in 818. Jimmy, yo, how you doing, man? It's Jules. Just listen up, man. 
Me and my homeboy in some serious fucking shit, man. We're in a car. We got to get off the road pronto. I need to use your garage for a couple hours. The brains in his hair. <laughs> That's the best part of that. Great touch. So, man, this is almost 30 years old. I oh, mean, my God. What's going on? What uh, Does it hold up? Yeah, of course. Of course it does. I, I mean, I don't know what it is, but it, over the last six months or so, maybe a year, I've just really started falling in love again with Quentin Tarantino. And and that's so funny, man. I've just never been able to like he's not super rewatchable for me. Like he's mm. kind of a one and done. Yeah. I watch it once and I really have a good time. And then I'm like, I'm good. Um, oh. And so what is it for you that just keeps pulling you back to uh, his his orbit? Yeah, well, okay. So I agree with you. Hmm. I agree with you. Like I, I don't, I don't really have a desire to go watch Pulp Fiction again. But, but I will say, this film is thirty years old. And when we decided to do it, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I'll watch <laughs> yeah, Pulp Fiction same. again. So maybe it's not rewatchable back to back. Like you know, if we're if we're doing an episode, I know you like to watch the film at least twice. That might be hard, you know. But I think, and I think that's kind of he's fine with that. Yeah, you know, he's. <laughs> I don't think any part of his filmmaking makes me think that he wants you to watch his movie again right after you're done. <laughs> I think I think you need a break, you know, even if it's for a, a few years, right? But after a few years, when someone says, "Hey, we're going to watch Reservoir Dogs," okay, mm-hmm. okay, cool. Hey, we're going to watch Inglorious Bastards. Oh, all right, Django Unchained. That's going to be a rough one, uh, but it's been about five years. Okay, sure. And so and there, there's something to that. Hmm. I think that one of the things that's brought me back to him has been like the way, the way his filmmaking style, right? Like he's such, he's just a, a purist. Like he doesn't make, he makes movies with you in mind, mm-hmm. right? He wants to take you through a journey, but he doesn't care if you get it or not. Like he, he, he really makes it for himself. And in all of the interviews that you see him do and stuff, he says that he's like, he's like, I love my movies. I make my movies for, for, for me. Now I want everybody to like them. Of course I do, you know, but at the same time, like if, if I'm not going to subvert my intention of a film just so that Joe Blow is going to enjoy it more, you know, no, I'm going to, I'm going to have a scene where a guy gets his face blown off and you're going to laugh. How how do you do that? That is really hard to do. I mean, I obviously I obviously think that the acting in this film is just amazing because it's very specific. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's one of his strengths, too, is is his character writing. You know, like he'll he writes for he really writes for the actor he can see in it. I think he probably saw Travolta and, and Samuel Jackson in these roles specifically as he's writing them. Right. Um, because, because he can see Travolta say, would you give a man a foot massage? You know, he can see him saying that. And so he writes it for that. And, and also the way he writes characters, he sets them up really well. You know, Samuel Jackson is the hardest dude. He's like so hard in this film. So then at the end, when he is, when he's got Tim Roth's character, I forget his name, when he's got him at gunpoint. And you're thinking, you know, oh, he could waste this guy, you know, and he lets him go. It has a lot more weight to it because of the way that he's been. Samuel Jackson has been this whole film. Right. 
And he does that with multiple characters throughout. And he just sets them up to be a certain way. And then when they're not, or when they have an opportunity to be, it's just more dynamic. And I think he, this film is a great example of that. I also love, I, I remember watching this for the first time and thinking, what the hell is going on? We are all over the place. And like when Vincent gets shot, when Butch kills Vincent, I was thinking, oh my, wait, what? And where was Samuel Jackson's character? You know, I, I just remember, well, oh, we're, the time is all over the place, you know, and thinking how cool that was because I had never seen a film that had done that. I know other films had done mm-hmm. it probably, but I hadn't seen one. And so just his, his fearlessness to do something new, to do something different was just really cool. It's just really, really cool. I loved the the couple of oneers, like the one of them going, you know, from the the I guess the the elevator when mm-hmm. they when Samuel Jackson and when Vincent and and then the the two gangsters, they're the wonder of them coming out of the elevator, walking through the hallway. They're about to knock on the door. They say it's early. They walk down the hall for a minute. They have a you know further conversation about a foot massage, and then they go back to the door. And they as they pass the camera we cut so that we can cut back to them right behind their heads before they go in the, in the door. That's great. You know, why not have something like, I I just think it was really, really well done, really well acted, really well written. It might be hard to watch back to back, but it's, it's a timeless film, man. Yeah. The the out of sequence aspect of this film is really cool, especially in, in that era. And I was so young when I saw this, Uh, I, I was probably, I don't know, 14, 15, at the most uh but yeah and so watching it you're so used to the convention of linear storytelling um and then to suddenly realize oh we're being thrown around a a bit because we open right with them and these nice well we open on the cafe but then we jump to the them and their nice black suits yeah and then we cut and suddenly they're in t-shirts um with the suitcase and we're like, wait, why are they in those clothes? And so just the, the wardrobing was so smart because that contrast is so strong. It makes you question, what the hell am I seeing? Um, without that really strong contrast in wardrobe, uh, you may, it may be lost on you that something is, is up. But then, uh, it also lets us know that, you know, when we get to the end of the, the film, uh, that they don't lose the briefcase and there's this tuggle over it. And if you remember, if you're that strong of a viewer, like you remember that, you know, they keep it that's now creating more tension in the final scene of how does this play out, uh, with, with violence or no. Um, and then of course, you know, jumping around, we get to see Vincent die, which hurts in the, in, in the moment. But the nice thing about out of sequence storytelling is, we also get to end the film with him still alive, which is nice. Like we get to see him walk out into the sunset. Yeah. And so it also lets us imagine why he died, right? There's, there's this further world building that's happening in the mind of the viewer. Um, if Vincent had left with Jules, he'd be alive, right? Uh, if he'd abandoned everything um, with Jules, he'd still be here. Or maybe if he'd stayed, if Jules had stayed, he could have saved Vincent um, instead of, or maybe they'd both be dead. Uh, and so it's just kind of this interesting thing to ponder about why what happened happened um, in other ways it could have ha- played out if X, Y, Z. And so placing it out of sequence kind of raises all these extra questions that may not necessarily be there 
with um, just kind of the linear version of it. It certainly sucks, you know, just thinking about it ending with Butch riding off into the sunset. It just doesn't feel complete. It feels feels off. And so this version of events opening and closing with the same scene is really genius and just kind of throwing stuff around uh, there in the middle. Do you do you have any like favorite moments or, or favorite characters? Yes. Vincent is my favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Vincent. My favorite moment in the whole movie is a moment I already said where <laughs> they're in the hallway. They're talking about the foot massage and he and Vincent's like egging, egging him on a little bit. Egging. Oh, gosh. What's his, what's his Jules. name? Jules. Thank you. Egging Jules on about the foot massage. And there's this moment of this tiny. I mean, it's he's so he's so brilliant. Say what you will about John Travolta. He's brilliant. <laughs> There's this tiny moment where there's a pause and he takes the tiniest step forward toward Jules and he says, would you give a man a foot massage? And just the look on his face, like his chin is like a little high and he's like, he's squinting a little bit. <laughs> and you just hear hear Jules go, fuck you. <laughs> and then they keep walking and the scene keeps going and it never cuts. It's part of the wonder. I love that moment so much. Just the writing and that whole thing, they're talking about a foot massage and how one guy says it's really important and how another guy says it it, it really isn't. And what's the the proper way to react with another man giving your wife a foot massage? Well, actually, yeah, yeah, maybe it's not that big of a deal. But wait a minute, if it's your wife, you know, like, or would you give a man? Yeah, like, it's just brilliant writing and brilliant for brilliant acting. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's several, but I think that that's, that's my favorite. My least favorite Ooh. moment? least favorite and the thing that almost kills the movie for me is quentin is his his acting his scene Mm. his scenes don't like him at all i think it's terrible acting um i think it's bad writing he doesn't you need to say the n-word he just doesn't need to say it like agreed look here's here's the thing you know if you have a film and we can go on a tirade about this whole thing i know it's been beaten to death with tarantino but you can have a film like django and honestly, you can you can get away with that because not everybody, not everybody, but he can get away with that because it's a period piece where that word was in the nomenclature of the day. Like everyone used it. It was a thing and, and everything. Even in the 90s, that felt awful. Right. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he uses it a couple of times in Reservoir Dogs, you know, so it's it exists you know, in his, in his world of filmmaking, but it doesn't have to when it's, when it's, you know, early nineties in a diner or when it's, uh, you know, later nineties, um, in a, in a house and, and it, there, there's just no reason for it, you know, for Django, maybe, but it just didn't. Yeah. And so his acting wasn't good. His writing wasn't good. Um, it, it would have been much better to have like Buscemi, in that role because Buscemi is in this film, but he's got the tiniest damn role. He's the waiter. Yeah. (laughs) You know, he's the, the the time. And I didn't remember that. So when I watched it again, I was like, what? I didn't know it until I went into the credits, even after watching it the first time I was like, Oh really? That was who? Oh, Oh. immediately. I was like, Oh, that's fucking Steve Buscemi. I, I, I understand why, why though. Um, but, but he would have been great for that spot. And it would have been better for for Tarantino. And it's his film. He's going to do what yeah. he wants, you know. It been better for Tarantino to be the waiter, the mm-hmm. asshole waiter, and for Buscemi to be, you know, um, 
his boy in in Toluca Lake. You know, like why not? Anyway, that's that's funny. Because Buscemi that, could do that role really well. He really could. He really could. And it's just funny in a in a film like this that is so perfectly cast in a way that walking in you wouldn't expect why is john travolta playing a gangster you know that casting decision alone was just brilliant and yet you know he miscast himself in his own film it's just yeah uh that's a really good observation um i i never thought about switching those roles around because yeah buscemi would have killed that and he could have even pulled off the n-word yeah, if probably. he really wanted to say, yeah, it. but yeah. I I agree. I mean, it's to me there's a small, a little less thing, not a lot less thing in this one, just because at least here he's got like Samuel L. Jackson in the room with them, and it's not like oh we're trying to get away with this without actually having to uh, you know say any of this in front of another black person uh, or in front of anyone of color, and so at least here it's like okay it's a scene i get the whole edge lord thing i'm i'm going to be edgy and uh it was certainly edgy in the 90s and okay there's a there's this com- comedy to it uh but yeah it's still i don't know it's just i i i don't think there's quite enough humor to make it work for me um personally i think it's so interesting though to have a a white writer writing it also for black characters because that felt completely organic and and uh okay to hear like Ving Rames and Samuel L. Jackson saying it in their dialogue. Um because like, okay, this is honest writing. Now I feel like, okay, whereas before he's just kind of shoehorning it in. I'm sorry if this, you know, dispels any myths about the way white people talk when they're alone. I've never heard white people go on like this, uh, dropping in bombs left so casually, let alone, you know, in front of anyone of color. But at least, you know, I that's not been my experience in, in the world anyway. And so yeah. building it up in, into this world is just it doesn't feel true. But I'm like, OK, at least if you're going to say it have someone there that has uh, some some stake in the game and um and if they want to you know speak up they're certainly i i'm i'm not holding samuel L. jackson back if he wants to speak up on set and uh but also appreciate you know he's a he's a creator he's there to uh to i don't know see the see the vision through and he's like okay i get it i don't know if he cares or not one way or the other but uh at least he was in the room um to to have that kind of conversation if he wanted to um yeah, but on that note, like dialogue uh, is it's interesting because Tarantino has his own thing, man. He he has his own dialogue, and what I found interesting watching this one was his dialogue is not musical uh, like a Sorkin. Sorkin has very musical dialogue. It's very rhythmic. Um, it's bouncy. Characters are bouncing off each other, and um, it's damn near you know you could score it, but. That's not Tarantino, at least not in this film. I, I would have to really pay attention to his other movies, but certainly not here, um, not in, certainly not in Reservoir Dogs, which we did recently. Uh, but it is very conversational. And you're going to hear characters fight for themselves. They're going to have very strong opinions and thoughts. Um, a lot of philosophical discussions and disputes, right? Which allow us to flesh out characters as inner worlds, um, right? Our foot rubs intimate. That becomes a whole conversation that you would never think to have anywhere else. And then suddenly they're talking about it and you're like, Oh, that is a good question. Um, And you see two characters kind of give their best shot at it. And, you know, our piercing guns 
as meaningful as needle piercings. You know, that's it's brief, but it's just it's philosophical. Like I, I have an opinion about this and it's very strong. And here's what it is. Conversation about uncomfortable silences, right? We get to experience one um, and then talk about it. And then we experience another one and see where that leads. Pot bellies, which could have start, just been an opinion, but it turns philosophical when she starts, uh, when he asks, well, what about guys? Can guys have pot? And she's like, no, here's why. I, I have a very philosophical opinion about why pot bellies are sexy on women, uh, but not on men. And he's like, well, do you, do you think uh, it's attractive to men? I don't care what men think of my body. <laughs> like, I love that flourish, uh, you know, for her character. Um, that's, that's beautiful. It's a really well-written character with their own inner world that's happening. We get to experience what that is based on the way she talks to uh, her boyfriend, the way she thinks about her own body, um, and a number of things. And a conversation about divine intervention, right? That's a whole philosophical thing. It's not just something that happened. It's how do I see the world and how do I interpret this moment um, between these two characters? We get to uh, flesh that out. Same thing. Filthy animals, right? Are, are dogs filthy animals? Because you're not going to eat a pig. But And so every piece of this isn't just here's a here's a comment and it's funny. It's a quip, right? Uh, I saw a headline recently about an article about how quippy everything's become and I could not agree more. Um, I'm, I'm good on just these little quick one-liners. Instead... What Tarantino brings is something that could start as a quip, but turns into a conversation about what you really believe and what you think about the world. Uh, and that's what makes his dialogue pop is, is, is because it's representing an inner life from a, a fully realized character. It's really, really smart. The other thing that he does a lot is storytelling. Obviously, the movie itself is storytelling, but the characters telling stories between each other is something that he does a lot. It's like, oh, man, Amsterdam, I got to tell you about this. You know, you wouldn't believe all the things that are happening. And here's the thing. It's not just, you know, you, you smoke it and you have it. But also, even if you have it, the cops can't just because it's illegal, you know, becomes this whole engaging story between these two characters, one informing another and the other reacting to it like, oh, man, I'm going. That's all there is to it. Um, and then, of course, you get to the end of the film. And you can imagine he does go to Amsterdam. And uh, it kind of further informs the, the having of the, the, the book ending of, of, this, of the story. Um, the, the gold watch becomes a story. And I'll come back to that in, in a little bit because there's a lot happening in that little story. And the foot massage stuff that you've talking about, right? And I also love that the foot massage rumor um, is an idea because we hear it spread and it turns into a, a, a philosophical conversation, but it's rooted in this story between the, the boss's wife and one of the other gangsters and how he got basically life altered, uh, dropped on his head from four stories and all because of a foot massage. And so we hear it spread and then we also see it uh, get debunked by Mia. Um, and so it retains life. It's not just one story between two characters. It's creating stakes for the characters themselves, um, as well as uh, being further demystified as the film goes on. So it serves a, a story point, a ramp of uh, tension and stakes, as well as, you know, just uh, a, a fun little conversation and another way, another inlet 
to Mia and as well as Marcellus um, to some extent, but more for Mia uh, because we see the way she's interpreting it and kind of enjoying how ridiculous it is. Uh, and then kind of calls Vincent out on how catty him and the other gangsters are. She's like, you're just a bunch of, you know, like sewing ladies or a sewing circle is what she calls it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just so fun. Um, and just a really smart use of storytelling within the, the story itself. Um, just genius. But the gold watch story I thought was just amazing. Not just because you have Christopher Walken telling this wild, insane story and no one can, can speak better than Christopher Walken. Doesn't, it doesn't I, I, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the story itself, if we look at it, you know, as, as uh, Coons, uh, it's Captain or Major Coons or something like that um, with a K, is, he's telling the story about this watch that was passed down from his great-grandfather from World War One to his grandfather who died in World War Two and made sure it got home to his father, who then went on to die in Vietnam, right? And ultimately delivered by his POW uh, friend, Major Coons. And of course, the story itself is that he had to hide it in their asses for seven years. And so the part of the, the story is that when you spend that much time with someone in those conditions, this is what Coons is telling uh, Butch as a little kid. And he's saying, me and your father spent so much time together as hostages. And when you do that, spend that much time with someone in those conditions, you take on certain responsibilities. That's interesting. And it's ultimately reflected in the story with Marcellus and Butch. And it's so genius uh, because Marcellus and Butch go through their own POW uh, hostage experience together, right? And it ends effectively with Marcellus has his... Um, pocket watch, quote unquote, right? If you think about the watch being hidden where it's hidden, and then ultimately think about Marcellus being assaulted where he's assaulted, uh, there's a very strong uh, through line there, uh, especially because Butch ultimately is in that situation because he went for his watch. It's all intertwined. And then Butch takes on a responsibility for saving him in the same way Coons took responsibility for Butch's father. Um, he's And so it felt like a cohesive end to the the watch storyline of we we experience something together and it's it's on me to make sure this uh is we're, we're connected now in a way that i need to honor in the same way my my father's friend honored him yeah it's a really crazy but really beautiful actual story that he's telling in there uh it's just layers of genius that i i've never noticed before personally but also that all turns into salvation for Butch. It's it's really unbelievable if you think about it. So if had had this all had that all not happened, had one the watch not been so important to him, and then had his girlfriend not not left it at the mm -hmm. house and him get mad and then and you know blow up and then go go to to retrieve it, then he wouldn't have well, one, you think it might be a salvation because he kills Vincent and you're thinking, OK, well, then there's one less goon to come after him. But then then gets into the other altercation with Marcellus, but then eventually, you know, saves Marcellus, which saves his life. So in in this, the whole story actually saves Butch. So yeah, <laughs> it's so crazy puts him in the, the, the awful situation, which he then gets himself out of and then saves him. So. Yeah, it's it's um, it's incredible. It's like a, an Easter egg within an Easter egg within an Easter egg. It's really, really cool writing.
Yeah, very, very solid. Um, the and it's what they're what he's doing throughout this entire film is creating a lot of contrast. Um, and I love every sequence. Um, really lets relationships develop uh, because it takes time to establish an energy, kind of a baseline that we can then upset. Um, and he really take. It would not be hard for me to go into this movie and cut out thirty minutes uh, if I really wanted to it's tighten long. this thing up. It runs really long, two and a half. Yeah over um and it's it's all building though it's about pacing and and creating an energy that you can then topple um and so uh sequences always start very sweet and end violently and so we spend like five minutes at the very beginning watching pumpkin and honey bunny be really sweet to each other right um and they're just kind of jittery. I don't know if they're like on meth or something, but uh, they're just all over the place physically. And if you watch that, that scene, you see them just kind of bouncing and um, she lays her head down and she's talking so sweet. And then watching Honey Bunny turn into a psychotic killer is hilarious as it is jarring. Um, it's just that that contrast really uh, brings it to life. And uh, as soon as you smash to the title sequence, you're just like in stitches, you're laughing and also uh, kind of freaked out. You're like, what are we watching? Um, it's just genius. Um, and then we hang out with Vincent and Jules, right? Getting along, telling stories to each other about this and that. And, and then they murder two guys, right? Uh, we go on a fun date with Vincent and Mia, right? Um, and they're dancing and they're having this conversation. We're hearing about her TV pilot and it ends in a bloody overdose. And then we spend time with butch and sugar pie right uh steeping in their love and uh losing the watch sets butch off and we spend so much time watching them together be really kind to each other spend the night wake up take showers or whatever like it's just ages and then suddenly you know butch is now throwing a tv across the uh at the wall and screaming and you know and watching her heart you know, break and get really scared is it's really heartbreaking to see her reaction to it all. It's a, uh, it's just a beautiful scene once the payoff hits, but you have to really earn that, that love and that energy. And that just takes time. There's, there's not a lot of ways that you can rush that kind of um, connection between two characters. And then of course that whole sequence ends with rape and mayhem, right? Murder. And, um, it, and so the nice thing is you create this very strong rule of sweet and sour and then in the final sequence, you break the rule because we watch Jules and Vincent clean up a violent mess. And then it ultimately ends peacefully. It's an unexpected end that also fits perfectly in, in tone and story, uh, because at that point, Jules, you know, is going through a, a life transformation. Um, and so it's just really nice that uh, he inverts it. And so normally in this kind of film, you would expect this really crazy violent ending. Uh, instead, he does the exact opposite. He lets the guy get away and he sends them on their way and it feels right. There's a rightness to it. Um, and ultimately, it's also because it's not the actual end of the story uh, linearly. Uh, that goes back to, you know, breaking things out of out of sequence uh, to get kind of the emotional uh, through line that you really want. Um, it's just a really nice touch. The other nice thing, story and writing wise, that I really like is how weird things get addressed that I don't think get addressed in other films. And so, like uh, in that last sequence, it opens with that guy bursting out of the room, blazing, and then getting killed. And then the first thing that happens is Vincent goes over to Marvin. He's like, You didn't want to tell us there was a guy hiding in the bedroom? <laughs> 
with a hand cannon. Did you see the size of that gun? It was bigger than him. Um, and it's just a really smart thing because normally that's that would just be a plot hole of, wait, this guy, Marvin, was on their side. Why didn't he let them know? And then you're just kind of frustrated with it. Instead, we see the characters themselves get frustrated and bring it up. And now we're going to address this thing like, what the hell, man? Uh, that's not okay. That's not cool. Uh, same thing when the gun goes off for no reason. Um, you know, he just shoots them and, and it's shocking and it's hilarious. But then you're like, why did that happen? And then you see the characters wrestle with it. Like, well, maybe you hit a bump, man. I didn't hit a motherfucking bump. <laughs> like, what do you, you did that. And so they're arguing about how this crazy thing that happened, uh, happened at all. And same thing with, uh, them not being shot, right? This guy comes out the room and misses just wildly fires and we see their reaction to it. And it, and it's not just this lucky deus ex machina kind of thing. It becomes a really huge story point that is ultimately responsible for the end of the film and why there is no violence. Um, and so it's just a uh, really smart and he does it. I'm sure in a, a dozen other times in the film where like a weird thing happens and the character's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why did that just happen? Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, just really, really smart. And I love that attention to detail of, I'm not just going to let something weird happen. I'm going to see how the characters respond to this weird thing happening. Um, and Yeah, like when, when Butch kills the guy on the fight, right? It's not just a, oh, this guy is dead now. No, he gets in a cab and the cabbie is prodding him about how it feels to kill a man. And he's realizing, oh, he's dead. Oh, I didn't know that. And then, but she still prods it out of him. And he's like, if you want to know how I feel, I don't have any feeling at all. You know, it, it like gets to the point of we're going to address that you've killed a guy. Now you've learned you've killed a guy. This is, you've processed the feeling. This is how you feel. And it, and it, it becomes, like you said, it becomes a thing rather than just a thing that happened. No, it's a, it's a thing that the character then has to go through and process we're going to make that process even after um, after Vincent saves Mia. He's so strong. He's he's like, I'm going to go home and have a heart attack. Like <laughs> that whole scene with him. It just makes me love him, you know, which is crazy because <laughs> he's a gangster who kills people. But, you know, he's really he's like, oh, thank God that I saved her. And, I, you know, I'm just OK. You're OK. And. And he's still processing it. He's still, you know, and then she gets to tell him her joke. He brings that back. And and the way that he responds to it is very endearing and loving. It's like, I love his so comment good. because he's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you. He's like, I can't wait. <laughs> like, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> exactly. The blood on exactly. him and his sweat, matty hair and he's just uh-huh. face is long and I can't wait. <laughs> and honestly, that's that's the best Uma Thurman looks in the entire film. She looks yeah, right. fantastic in that. She look, she's classic. so destroyed, but she looks fantastic. Well, I in love that, that. I was thinking about that watching this film, and there's so many actresses um, who are beautiful and refuse to get dirty. Like they just want to be beautiful on screen. They never want to uh, get their hands in the mud and and play a gritty character, um, look out of sorts. Instead, they just want to be glamorous. Um, and I just love Uma Thurman for. Uh, playing this really grungy moment right where she's overdosing she's got uh the the milkshake vomit coming back up and nose is bloody she's all a mess um and you know she uh, she's getting drug around they're so physical with her body that you really feel like she's dead just by the way they they manhandle her um from the yard through whenever uh he's trying to point out like where her her heart is and he keeps thumping on her 
rib cage and her, her chest. Uh, and you can just, and she's not responding right because you know, she's near dead. Like her performance there is amazing. And I'm just also like, she's going to be bruised to shit tomorrow. Um, uh-huh. cause they were really just pounding on her. Um, yeah. And so I love her for taking on that role, uh, because I think there's a lot of actors who don't want to see themselves in, in like a, a, a bad, you know, makeup deal, uh, instead lean into it and be a character, be a human being, be messy. Exactly. Um, yeah, I love that. So good. Um, as far as like directing and production value, I kind of just threw these in together. They do have some pretty long takes. Like you mentioned the one on the hallway. Uh, I, even that whole sequence starts with this really long hold on just dialogue between these two guys. Uh, it's just a window shot for, I don't know. It's probably only a, a two minutes or two or three minutes, but uh, it's just Vince and Jules talking about Amsterdam. And we just hold there until he gets through that full story. And then we start cutting around as they start moving into whatever comes next, uh, the quarter pounder with cheese or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then towards the uh, middle, I guess, is the shot of the car crashing into the yard, which is amazing mm-hmm. because yes. it starts as a shot um, in the house and he walks over and pulls the shade off the door. And we're now looking through the door window and the car just hops the curb and crashes in the yard and you're thinking okay they can cut now nope we're going to open the door we're going to walk out the door and we're going to see the wreck and all this you know destruction sitting on the car and then we're going to pull the body out of the car um have a whole conversation then we're going to grab her and start walking inside and then we'll cut like that's a really really cool uh sequence because it it sells you on the world, the world building, the scale of, no, this just happened. This isn't like a set piece that we, we constructed. It's, you know, slate of hand. We're going to figure out how can we feather just enough that we can get what we need. Uh, because I assume Tra- Travolta is driving. Maybe not. They might've had a stunt driver, um, which would make sense. And then did a hot swap uh, mm-hmm. when they're out of frame but it's it's clean like it's so clean and just a a really genius shot which this movie isn't a beautiful movie and it's not supposed to be uh there's not a lot of beautiful shots it's very hard lighting right it's pulpy that's kind of part of the definition at the beginning that they give you right it's a rough unfinished paper or something like that and so this film is not supposed to be gorgeous it isn't uh there's probably all of you know a couple of shots that I'm like oh that's a beautiful shot uh i think the main one is butch sitting in front of being rames or uh, uh marcellus wallace listening to the rundown about how he's going to take a dive in the fifth uh which can you do, do you notice the camera chain move from in that shot uh, i mean the, the, it's a very slow push isn't it no no so so i know i noticed it this time but i'd never noticed it before so i think it was a take that he just loved but the camera there, it was an error like like the, so if you if you watch it it's just bruce for i don't know a minute and a half two minutes or something but at one point about halfway through the camera kind of nudges over just oh, a little really? bit to, no. to center him more and you know you think when you watch a, a film you know timeless like this that like everything is planned and everything has a has a motivation but i honestly just think the cinematographer realized oh he's not centered let me center him real quick mm-hmm. and then in post uh, tarantino is like I love that take. That's the best take. We have to use it. I don't care that you fixed the camera because the camera's completely static. It yeah, doesn't locked. move at all, yeah. except it just centers him more about halfway through. I love it. That's I love awesome. that he just is like, that's the best take. I don't mm-hmm. give a shit what happened to the camera. That's the, his take is the best. And he kept it. 
Yeah, I wonder if I mean there's so many other things that could have happened, of course. Um Sure, maybe, sure. Maybe that was motivated, but I don't know, but maybe. Or maybe it's just uh like, oh, this other shot, we were soft, right? And the oh, focus was oh. off. Uh there's other technical reasons that it could have been uh, you know, yeah. better. Or maybe uh they do two takes uh and they're both great, and then they're like, Oh, actually, let's uh let's move this light. Let's let's we forgot to turn on that that backlight. Let's turn on that fluoro or whatever. And then suddenly it's like, oh, that's the best looking one. We had to make her day. We had to move on. But at the end of the day, because of the budget and who's making this, I'm probably leaning towards what you're saying. Like uh, Tarantino's like, you know what? This is the best take. Let's just let's go. Let's do it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Genius. And music, they do a I mean, Tarantino's big on music, and I think he's finally gotten into scoring. Uh, but for years, his whole attitude was there's no reason to ever score uh, because there's so many great songs that you can use for your films. Um, just use all the music that's out there. Uh, and in this film, virtually everyone is listening to music at some point or another. Butch in that scene is listening to Marcellus with the song overlapping the dialogue like they're mushing together. And just watching this movie, thinking about music, I mean, it's 80% of the film uh, has has some kind of soundtrack popping. Uh, what do but, you think about that? Uh, I disagree. I, I think that's it's a really cool attitude to take into a, a film. But I'm sorry, I don't think if I'm watching The Witch that there's a bad reason to have a score. <laughs> Agreed. A thousand percent. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Um, but I also love the way he uses music in a, in a very smart, you know, directorial sense, uh, because it helps establish a time sync between Mia and Vince during the OD sequence, because Vince goes to the bathroom, they get home from winning their trophy and Vince goes to the bathroom and he's talking to himself and, and getting revved up to just eject because he feels the energy shifting. And he's like, uh, I'm not trying to get killed uh, for one night with the boss's wife. And she is she puts as soon as he leaves the room, she puts on a song. Right. Uh, and it's this great little tracking shot of her singing along to the song. And then she goes and has a seat. And we keep cutting in between her listening to the song and Vince in the bathroom. You can hear the song in the background. And it's great because it could feel like Vince is in the bathroom for way too long. Uh, but the song lets us hear that it's hardly long at all. Um, by the time he gets out and she's on the floor on the verge of dying, it really was just the, sh the length of a short song. Um, and that's a really great use of the song to, to kind of keep us in a timeline uh, in a logical sense. Yeah. The other smart thing that he does uh, and he, he probably didn't need to do it, but maybe it's one of those things where if you can cut a corner, why not? Which is doing a lot without paying for it, right? And so at the beginning, when they kill Brett, right, they just open up and they just kill this dude in his chair. We never see the bullet strike, right? We dip to gold between Jules and Vince as the gun is blazing, the gold being some representation of whatever's in the suitcase. And everyone has a theory it's the soul of Marcellus walls or whatever. Who cares? Um, I, if the film doesn't provide an answer, I'm not, you know, and there's no clue in the film to me about what it actually is. Uh, then I got nothing. The only clue you could make is the lock code on the briefcase is six, six, six. And so maybe he sold his soul to the devil for money and whatever. I don't know. But beyond that, uh, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. Um, good conversation piece, but, uh, I don't think we, we get told in the film. And so it's just kind of one of those things that, you know, sometimes writers and directors do to, mm -hmm. to create yeah. a life of its own. 
And so we never see him actually get shot. So you don't have to load up all these squibs. Even when he shoots people in the scene in the shot, there's no squibs. There's no blood, right? He shoots the guy on the couch uh, and you're just like, oh, I guess he's dead. And we just kind of move on. Like it's weird. And he shoots him in the shoulder. Once again, no blood. We just kind of move on. And so it's just this really interesting thing that he got away with, I guess, because of the nature of the kind of exploitative style that he's going after that you can do these weird things and not lose the audience. Like that's kind of mind blowing to me that I still bought in because the characters are so interesting. And this is a, the reason this movie works is the the, the acting the dialogue uh, and the stories that he's telling nothing else about this movie is really selling you. And yeah. And so he didn't have to whatever, do all these setups and resets uh, to get the squibs just right. Now, when we come back to that at the end, we do get a couple of nice squibs on the guy who gets shot after coming out of the room. Um, and it's brief. It's bang, bang. And that probably made it easier. It's like, okay, we just need this one close up, uh, and then we're good. The other th- thing happens is when that di- guy does come out and tries to shoot them. Once again, we never see the bullets explode into the wall. We see the gunfire. We see the reverse angle is just holes in the wall. Uh, and that's it. And then they shoot them. And that's when we finally get uh, a couple squibs. Same thing with the, uh, the lady who's trying to help Butch out of the car. I love that she gets shot in like the hip. <laughs> She's just bleeding out on the ground. It's yeah. such a weird place to shoot someone. And it's just perfect. Um, it's very Tarantino. And yeah. And so I just love this high production, you know, desire that is met with a really low production payout. Um, and it ultimately creates really great production value. Like, oh, we'll just put some holes in the wall. And their reaction to not getting shot. And that's all we need. We don't need to CG or whatever they were doing there. You know, visual effects in post uh, to create this little gun smoke or whatever. Nah, we'll just we'll just play it to the bone and and let it stand on its own. Yeah, I don't know. This is a, a genius film. And some people, my my buddy Ian, has, he's so obsessed with this movie when it came out that he put it on cassette. He had like four or five whatever cassette tapes and would just listen to it on cassette in his car. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, on, ca- on audio cassette. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and to him, Tarantino's never got this good again. He's, he's never lived up to this potential is how he feels. And he's like, he still goes and watches it. He still likes Tarantino's films, but he's like, they're just not as good. They're not this. Um, and he thinks it's, the lack of working with other writers because I, I don't know if the DG, uh, the WGA changed the guidelines or what, but he got a written and directed credit, even though the story was created by him and Roger Avery. Uh, and so normally you have to get that same credit in order to qualify for a written or maybe not. Maybe there's some rule. Maybe they changed the rule. Um, maybe I just don't fully understand the rule. Um, the last time I, I looked in their, their credit section, that was how that kind of broke out and how much someone, and it's all, it's all a weird arbitration process because how much someone contributes, uh, is ultimately up to the WGA about, Oh, you gave, you came up with X ideas. Okay. You get a story by credit. Um, and, and that could be, I had to come up with two of these entire sequences. Um, even though I didn't screenwrite it, maybe I came up with, uh, the boxer who doesn't take the fall, um, who rescues Marcellus Wallace, uh, from these weirdos in the pawn shop, man. Okay. I did that one. And I did, uh, the, 
the bandits at the beginning and the end. Um, now I get a story. I have no idea, but it, it's all uh, fittingly arbitrary because uh, you got to go through arbitration. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, but I think this isn't my personal favorite. I think Inglorious Bastards is probably my favorite Tarantino, but I can see after watching this now for the first time and probably, I don't know, 10 years, uh, I can, I can understand that, that desire to say, yeah, he's never hit this level again because the stories are so specific and weird. I saw a buddy sent me a clip about Tarantino saying the motivation for creating this was, uh, I'm going to take some tropes, some classic tropes, and I'm going to mush them all together. The, the boxer who takes a dive, the, the gangsters who pull a hit, uh, and the, the night out with the boss's wife. And, uh, I'm going to just throw them all together and, and, and I'm sorry, if you give those three ideas to anyone else, they do not come up with Pulp Fiction. Like, no. Yes. <laughs> at all. Uh, yes. Yeah. I don't know. Do you feel like this is his peak or has, do you feel like it's in keeping with everything as, as a whole? Oh man, that's a, that's a good question. I think that it's a hard question. I, I think, yeah, it's probably his peak. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoy Inglorious Bastards more because of the payoff that you get. I also enjoyed, uh, what is it, the Hollywood? Uh, oh, yeah, gosh. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really enjoyed that, mm-hmm. you know, and some people, like, didn't. But I, I love rewriting history to be better. Yeah. Thousand percent <laughs> behind that. And so to have a guy who was more than willing to do that in some horrific ways and to rewrite that... Yeah, and to make me laugh during it, hell yeah, I I love that. So I think that those are much more rewatchable. Hmm. But when it comes down to story and intertwining and and dialogue and acting, I don't think it gets any better than this than this film. Like Travolta and and Samuel L. Jackson make this movie for me. I mean, you could I I love um, Bruce Willis in it as well, but you could replace him. Like if, if, if we, if you had to, you could probably replace him with somebody and it would, and it would be really good, but I just love Travolta's character so much. And Samuel L. Jackson, the way that they, they dialogue back and forth with each other. They never lose who they actually are, even when they're mad. So like the way that Vincent is mad is so calm, (laughs) you know, even when he's yelling, he has this air of calm behind him and Samuel L. Jackson is just, he's just angry all the damn time. (laughs) Even when he's calm, they're like totally opposite and they're perfect together. Um, but I can tell they don't, I don't think there's a lot of ad-libbing going on, you know, uh, is what I'll say. I think that it's what, what they say is the script. So that is testament to the writing because it's still, it's so conversational. And I don't think that any of his other films, kind of like had that air i don't think that they're that level Hmm. i also love i just love his filmmaking style he's like you know what we're gonna get harvey keitel again i know we just worked with him on reservoir dogs we're gonna put him in here we're gonna get um tim roth yeah 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 we're everybody we had in reservoir dogs we're gonna put in this movie too because why not you know and and i just i love that why not you know they he knows what he's gonna get from them it's gonna be great He's writing roles specifically for Keitel, specifically for it. So why not for Samuel Jackson? So why not? And I don't think that anything that he's done since has really tied all that together, despite how much I love his filmmaking style, like unabashed, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you can say what you will about it, you know, uh, that you agree or don't agree. But I just, 
that's really cool that he's just like, I have this idea. I want to do it the way that I want to do it. And I'm at a level now where I can do that. I think that he probably, he, I've seen interviews with him before. He said he's only got, he's probably got one more movie in him and then he's going to stop making movies. I don't know that that's the case, but you know, whatever that is, whatever that movie is, it's probably going to be his defining film. It, mm. it needs to be, I would say if he wants to, cause he's, you know, he's that kind of guy who says, I want to be up there with, you know, Coppola. I want to be up there with, you know, with uh, the, the greats with Spielberg. And in order to do that, he needs to do something else, right? It can't just be because those are guys who aren't one trick ponies. Those are guys who can do a breadth of, of work. And I think that he, over the last couple of films has gotten into this rut of you're going to expect gruesome violence. You're going to expect the N word. You, you know what to expect when you go see a Tarantino film. And so if he wants to be up there with those guys, he's got to do something completely different that you don't expect. So I, I don't know what that's going to be, but it, it, it needs to be something, something else. If he wants to be in, in the same breath as those guys, yeah. I would say. Agreed. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Any uh, final thoughts? Um, no, it was, it just very enjoyable. Uh, again, yeah. And only because it's been several years, probably yeah. about 10 years since I've seen it as well. Um, love that he shoots on film, you know, love the, the, the breathing he gives to all of his work. It's, it's just really, really solid. So yeah, yeah no, I, I don't have anything else. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's one of the interesting things watching this again was all the breathing room he really created for his characters to just kind of exist for a while. I think that's one of those things I'm, I'm trying to lean more and more into of, uh, letting things happen without there being a, a heavy plot point happening. I think some directors really do well about pushing the plot forward. Like Fincher is excellent about uh, every scene is going to be thematic while also pushing the plot. And then other directors are not so big on that. Um, I just reread, uh, uh, read Sing Street um, screenplay uh, by John Carney. And it was just really interesting uh, how many scenes were just characters existing for a bit just to establish uh, who they are and the kind of establishing a world for them to exist in before you start messing with it. And uh, Tarantino seems to do a really good job uh, from the get go, at least Pulp Fiction, of just letting these characters be and us observing them for ages. Again, it's a good half hour that you could trim off without really uh, beginning to affect the plot but you would absolutely affect the energy uh, and the enjoyment of the film um, because how can you have, you know, a, a sprint if you don't have a nice long walk in between uh, you, you get tired of sprinting after a certain amount of time. Uh, and so walk then sprint and then walk. Uh, and he just does a really good job of, of letting us walk for a while, catch our breath uh, before suddenly, you know, putting uh, ball gags and uh, Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames, mouths, because, you know, you need a minute before you do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you need a minute before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well said. Oh, nice. What uh, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Uh, yeah, th this week I'm going to recommend a, a film that, that also is not, is like well-written, but it is kind of like defined by its acting, I think. Uh, I'm going to recommend No Country for Old Men. I, I'm, I'm surprised that we haven't done that yet, actually, but... I think that for for me, so, uh, like Javier Bardem's uh, role in that film 
is so definitive of of a just a n- not insane but just like a, a focused evil or focused drive if you want to say you don't need to call it evil just focused drive it's just it's really really brilliant with with very few words josh brolin is also incredible in that film as well so yeah no country for old men nice i'm going to recommend a podcast it's uh called the director's cut it's put on by the dga and what's really cool about this is normally you know you have a podcast where whoever goes a director damon chazelle goes on and does an interview about you know babylon or whiplash or whatever he's got coming out and uh, it's just a conversation between a podcast host like us uh and the director the dga will bring in another director to interview a director about the film they just made. And so you get to hear two heavyweights talk about the craft. And so uh, you'll get things you didn't know you wanted to hear stuff. I mean, I want to say Spielberg was on discussing the Fablemans with, I want to say it was Paul Thomas Anderson. It may, it may have been someone else, but something like that where you're getting PTA and Spielberg in a room and letting them talk about the craft of directing and filmmaking, like what the hell? And then the recent one that I, I, I really love the whale, Darren, uh, Aronofsky's latest film. Um, I really enjoyed it. And he went on to discuss uh, the whale with Greta Gerwig. And so I was like, I never knew I wanted to hear those two people in a room together. And I could not get enough. It was way too short. And just listening to Aronofsky talk, man, I just feel like lately I've more and more been hearing a lot of directors that I respect say a lot of the things that I've been thinking and feeling and uh, probably saying on the show and, and hearing them say it is very affirmative. And like, okay, I'm not, I'm not a, a dummy who just doesn't get it. Uh, uh, maybe there's something to the way I, I like to work, which is fast. Um, I like to shoot. I, I, I'm not big on big lighting setups. I like to, you know, work out my lighting ahead of time and more often than not, you know, try to use as much available light as possible and then just get in and get my scenes um, so that I can spend more time with the actors and they can spend more time in the scene and uh, in the headspace of the script. And uh, you get, you create a, a fluency of the language and the, the mindset with the actors. And it's just, it all melts together really well. Um, and then um, I'm listening to Aronofsky discuss the whale and how he shot that. And he was saying a lot of things, the same stuff about, you know, the, the faster you shoot, the more um, you're able to keep the actors connected to the material. And um, like, yes, 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 this is it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and of course, his version of shooting fast is, fast is probably a little different than mine because uh, he still took, I don't know, four to six weeks uh, to shoot, you know, the whale, but it was in one location. And so when he's working on a scene, it sounded like you really just got to work on the scene for a huge chunk of time and, you know, create the the throughput that he was looking for. Um, yeah. And so the director's cut, if you scroll through, you'll find so many really cool conversations between directors. Um, and I go through these phases of, I just, I don't want to, I do so much analysis, um, with you that I'm like, I'm good on hearing like when <laughs> yeah. anyone sends me other film analysis, nine times out of 10, I don't watch it. Sometimes if it's a short clip, I'll, I'll watch it. Um, anything that has Hans Zimmer, I'm, I'm going to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, by, by and large, I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm good. Uh, we do our own analysis and I'm, I'm really happy with what we do on the show, but when I do get the itch, it's usually going to be that. And maybe I'll recommend the other podcasts that I really like. I fell out of love with script notes. Uh, I, 
I, there was like a good six months where I just couldn't get enough. And then eventually I was like, man, they spend like 15 minutes discussing the craft of screenwriting. And then like an hour, uh, discussing stuff that I just don't really care that much about. Um, and it sucks because they're geniuses, like their work. Uh, one of the guys wrote Chernobyl and he's the writer. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, Craig Mazin is just hilarious and a really, really talented writer. John August is also, I bought his, he, he, years ago, he put out this screenwriter card pack that I bought before I knew who he was and fell in love with their podcast. And eventually I was like, ah, okay. So every once in a while, I'll still kind of go back and listen to an episode. If I think this is going to be a, a chunky one, um, otherwise, but there is one other show that I think is solid. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll drop that next week. Uh, if, if anyone is still looking for fun craft, uh, podcast, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Awesome. So stay tuned next week. We are going to be doing a request. Uh, the next two weeks we have, uh, two requests. We're finally going to circle back to, uh, the first one is from Dustin. Uh, he requested that we do kiss, kiss, bang, bang, um, which is a classic Shane black film. And I, I felt like on the heels of Pulp Fiction with dialogue, uh, it's, it's perfect to take on a, a Shane black film. And so we'll look at, uh, Robert Downey Jr. And one of his, uh, cult iconic films. This isn't really a well-known film outside of like film buffs. Uh, but it's so good. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. So stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review. I think we'll probably take a couple week hiatus. I know you have a, a trip coming up, and so we'll break for that for sure. We'll probably get a couple in the can before you leave, and that way, whenever you come back, we'll we'll be able to start releasing them again. So there might be a two-week delay um, between the next release. But uh, regardless, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a note. If you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash pulpfiction. And our quote of the day is from Quentin Tarantino. I steal from every movie ever made. That That's a really interesting way to put that. So not from every movie I've ever seen, from every movie ever made. So that, that actually says he's a student at the same time as he, he knows he doesn't, he doesn't have all the ideas, hmm. but the, all the ideas are there, you know, and that, He's, he's resourceful. That's one of the things that I love about Quentin Tarantino, honestly, is his resourcefulness. Like you mentioned earlier, like, like, okay, if we don't need, we don't, if we don't need to pay for squibs, let's not pay for squibs. Let's, let's edit around that. It's not going to make the movie better because we see explosions coming from this guy's chest. (laughs) Really it, it, you know, how can we, how can we do it? So we save that, you know, $7,000 put it towards food for the actors, like whatever, you know, to make the experience better, whatever point being is like, what was the line? I always, I've said it for years. Uh, every artist, Bono said, said this, every artist is a cannibal. Every poet is a thief. We all kill our inspiration and sing about our grief. I I think that that that's, it says a lot about what, what this is. It's okay. You know, reservoir dogs was, the whole movie was the end of another movie. He just took it and he built an entire movie around it. And there's nothing wrong with that because the movie he took from didn't say the things that his movie says. And it's okay. You don't have to have all the, you don't have to start from nothing. You know, there are, there's 150 years of people who, of ideas that have come before you, you know, but, but they're not your ideas. You know, you could take something that's tiny and turn it into something that's gigantic because even the tiny stuff is gigantic 
if you see it that way. It's it's so it's great. Agreed. No, great, great quote. Agreed. Uh, yeah, not much to add. I think, you know, starting from a place of understanding you can't create anything new. Instead, you can just have your own voice in the things that you think about, things that are important to you, conversations that you've had or want to have. Make it specifically to your taste. And that's how uh, you can steal from someone else without anyone ever knowing you did it in the first place. Um, it's all about making it specific to you. And that's also why I think movies are, are having a really hard time, you know, the last couple of years is because no one's doing that. Everyone's trying to make something for the audience when you first have to start with making it for yourself. And if you can't do that, you're, you're watering it down. You're trying to make mm -hmm. it, you know, acceptable for other people. Um, and, and you really have to honor your own artistic calling and ideas and, and, and emotions. And so, uh, that's why Tarantino is who he is. Like, don't try to be Tarantino. We, we got one, you know, what we need is you, we need a you, um, That's great, you know, and, and that's the stuff that I, I need to hear. And I keep needing to remind myself of like, it's, it's okay to do things your way. Um, and maybe ultimately you die without anyone knowing who you were. Uh, but maybe also that's, that's how you, you know, um, who is it? Monet, who suddenly took on a new life when people said, Oh my God, look what this guy was doing. Why didn't we appreciate him while he was here? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, ultimately all you can do is honor your, your, your own calling and, and hopefully you can make a living while you do it. And that man. So, so I think I finally just got it when you said, cause you said this for a while, I'll say this and I'll, we can call it, but uh, you, you said you can't make anything new. And every time you've, you said that, um, it like, it like hurts, right? Cause you know, when you're a creator, that kind of thing hurts. I think that's the goal. But I think, All you want to do is create something brand new. Right. Right. That's mm -hmm. your, that's your goal. But if you, but that's pretty, that man, that that's, that's a lot of pressure. Hmm. It's a lot of pressure as someone who is, who has, what you hope to be, what you, what you think is good taste and, you know, a love for a craft, good taste and a love for a craft are, are a recipe for sadness. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want to try to make something new. So, and, and for stagnation, I think now I'm, I'm just finally getting it now that we've seen this quote and you're saying that again, I'm like, you know what? Yeah. There's something just like, just like there's something freeing and having limitations right now, all of a sudden, this is all I can do. So I'm going to do something with this. It, it, it's actually, you know, now I, I can, I have a, a path, a way forward as opposed to I can do anything. Well, uh, then you have, you know, decision fatigue essentially. But if you say, you know, I can't make anything new, but you still want to make something. Okay. Well then what exists that I can then turn, you know, make some, make something for myself, you know, in this, in this vein with, with what I have and, all of a sudden limitations are actually a, a tool you can use rather than something that, that, you know, makes you feel like, Oh, this has been done, done before. So, but you have to have that mindset. Yeah. You're right. It is a mindset of you can't make anything new. Um, and then once you embrace that, you can just make, yeah. and then it becomes something new. Yes. Because it's you. Yes. It's, yeah. Cause you're unique. You're your own, you know, snowflake fingerprint, I retina, whatever you're your own thing with your own experiences. And some of those are shared, uh, but others are solely interpreted by you. And that's yeah. what gives everything its own distinct, you know, fingerprint. And 
no one tells you when you start being an artist that it's really, really damn lonely um, because you start out in this oasis and it's all fun and it's beautiful and um, nothing could be more enjoyable. Uh, but then you start your journey and you realize, man, there's a lot of desert. Now, some other artists have more desert than others, like Rodriguez started, you know, uh, and he he found civilization really quickly. Um, and I feel like, you know, I and probably you, you may feel the same way of like just been wandering in the desert for, you know, a decade and plus. Uh, and it's just like, man, when will I find humanity um, or, you know, when will humanity find me? I don't know. But the options are to either stop being an artist and, you know, hit the ejection button uh, or the SOS and, you know, just get your airlift back home uh, or trudge forward. And it's these little things that give me hope of like, you know what? I don't have to reinvent the wheel. It exists. All I need to do is, is take the wheel on my journey. Um, and that's what other people are going to connect with. It's not trying to be universal. It's, you know, you find something so specific and so singular that people suddenly empathize with it because they're experiencing a new story that they haven't either heard told before because uh, it's combining things that they're familiar with and now they're relating on a you know specific level um, or it's it's something that they have experienced and now they're connecting because they understand what you're feeling too don't be new for the sake of new be be you and that'll you know create its own own universe unto itself i think well said very well said man well this is, this has been awesome i'm really glad that we did this uh finally done pulp fiction after 220 episodes uh so if you like this please share it with your friends please subscribe review us all that stuff really helps uh dustin thank you for the suggestion for kiss kiss bang bang looking forward to that uh we really appreciate all the listeners and all the suggestions until next week i'm todd i'm wes go watch the movies